0: My name is Spencer Bros. I'm the lead pastor here at St. Stephen's, and it's good to be back. It's been two Sundays away, and uh, it was great. For first weekend was great. We were able to go to a reunion and spend some time with some friends and reconnect in those ways. Second weekend, not so great, I was sick. So it's really good to be here and to be with you and, uh, and be well. So uh, as we gather to, in worship, as we focus on Scripture, we turn once again to 1 Peter as we've been doing, as we've been shifting from Easter while well, continuing Easter with hope. Hope in the midst of imperfect circumstances, as we look at the early church that First Peter was uh, that Peter was writing to in this letter we call First Peter. So beginning in chapter two, verse two, we read this: like newborn or infants long for the pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow into salvation. if Indeed, you have tasted that the Lord is good. Come to him, a living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight. And like living stones, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, See, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. To you, then, who believe, he is precious. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the very head of the corner. And a stone that makes them stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy and now you have received mercy the word of God for the people of God thanks be to God so Pastor Aminu asked the kids what can you do with this one little Lego what's that it's a landmine right so if you have one you can either do nothing or find it in the dark with a bare foot which is never fun Good catch, because that was a bad throw. But we were, we we didn't talk about this. We were the same mind. But if you have a whole bunch, I'll get that later. And they're, you know, just kind of there. That's still nothing, right? It's still nothing. Until you take them and put them together, and maybe you build something like a baby Yoda, also known as Grogu. You know, you put them together. They make something, and it's, how they're meant to be. Or if you have a lot and a lot of imagination and a lot of time, you can make a larger-than-life butterfly, a a full-size R2-D2, a a life-size Iron Man, a to scale Hogwarts, a scaled Crystal Cathedral, or even a life-size sculpture of Jesus, as we see there in a church. That's in a church in Sweden, by the way, as a sculpture of Christ. You put all these different things together, different shapes, different colors, different sizes, and you make, can make wonderful things out of them. I've enjoyed them since childhood and continue to do so today. As we look at today's text, as Pastor Muno already made the connection, we're like the Lego box. Different shapes, different sizes. Some are very specific, others are pretty general. But each one precious and useful, and when put together, makes something amazing and beautiful. As Peter would say, goes on to say, about the church, the people of God. But in addition to what these stones or blocks put together create, He's helping the people of this church in Asia Minor. They're in what we would call Turkey, that area, that region of the world now. These people who were being persecuted for their faith. By now, the Roman Empire was uh, focusing on Christians as as uh, dissidents, as insurgents, as uh, those who were causing trouble in a major way, and they were afraid. And they were asking the question, what, how do we live out our faith? Peter's addressing a question in this letter. He doesn't say it outright, but you see it as you read through it. How do we live out our faith? Do we live it underground? Do we hide? Do we hide our faith? And Peter's addressing that question in multiple ways throughout the letter. But in this section of the letter, he's doing it by, by helping them to shift their perspective of who they are, and how they are seen by the world. Throughout this um, letter, he starts off um, uh, in, in the very first chapter about shifting their minds about who they are the, as a persecuted church. The God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, this is in chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, And into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who are being protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And then in the 23rd verse, you have been born anew, not of perishable, but of imperishable seed through the living and enduring word of God. Not only have you been born anew, but you're born anew from something that before would go away was perishable but now you're something new and it's imperishable before as you experienced these things you if you had experienced these things before as perishable it would have been a different story but today it's a different thing you are different you are new you might say that the flow of the opening parts of the letter go from reminding them of their living hope in the resurrected Christ to imploring them to embrace holy living as they've been reborn through the living word of God, and which moves them to this current section, that because Jesus is the living stone, they as followers of Christ are also like living stones. And then Peter goes on to build these other parallels. Christ is the living stone, the the church is our living stone. Rejected by humans as Christ was, Peter's audience are shunned strangers in the world. Christ is God's chosen and precious. Peter's audience are God's own people, a holy, royal, and uh, good people, and pre- royal priesthood, and so on. Christ is honored by God, and so is Peter's audience. Now, Peter's not putting the church on the same level as Christ. However, he is trying to connect them to the Christ and that they are part of This one who had died, who rose again, and now sits at the right hand of the Father. And because they are also living stones, Peter takes Christ's imagery to another level. Not only is he a living stone, but he's the living cornerstone. Let's talk a little bit about what that imagery of the cornerstone meant in first century, or at least as far as we can understand it did in the first century. In modern times, cornerstones are those, are those fancy bricks or stones that are in the edge of a building. They're usually about four feet off the ground so everybody can see them. And, and they're pretty. They might have something engraved on them. They might be hollowed out for something to be used as a, um, uh, what do you call that, time capsule. I was going to say time bomb. That was a very different thing in my head. And, I'm, and I left my iPad at home, so I'm stuck with paper, and I can't find my stuff. So anyway, but that was then. But in the first century, a cornerstone wasn't any, was, had a very real purpose, um, and it was very necessary. It had a very practical purpose. It ensured that the rest of the building would be squared. The 90-degree angle that was laid out by the cornerstone would dictate that the walls weren't too narrow, uh, as they were inside, or too wide, and then the roof wouldn't work on the outside. So it, it, it was very practical. A, a perfect cornerstone was a thing of beauty into, uh, and a wonder to behold and was something that was appreciated. It also had rit- ritualistic purpose. If the building that was being built was there for its own ritualistic needs or means, it lined the building up for whatever it needed to, to be. If the door was to face the sunrise, then by laying that cornerstone perfectly, the door would face sunrise. Or if it needed to see the spring equinox at the right time in the right place, you had a window there, it helped to do that as well. So the cornerstone also had ritualistic meaning. But it also had symbolism beyond um, simply that which was, uh, I've already talked about. They considered the cornerstone a seed because if it was doing its job right, if it was laid perfectly, the rest of the building just seemed to grow from it. Because every other stone would lay up for a mason, somebody who knew what they were doing, it seemed like it would go right into the right place each time. And because the cornerstone was a seed, it was seen as a living thing. So what elevates the idea of living stones, it's not just the idea that we're, we're living and we're being uh, connected to being stones, it's that the stones that grew out of the cornerstone build the house, and they too are living. We are those same stones in the building that is the church, the people of God together. Peter's working really hard to build these folks up. And he's not blowing out of proportion. He's not exaggerating anything. He's just laying out a new way of seeing the world. He's helping them to get out of this place of doom and gloom. And there was certainly plenty of doom and gloom around. But he was showing them that there was more to be experienced in the world around them. To not see themselves from a worldly perspective, but from God's sight, from God's view, from God's perspective. He's trying to tell them that what matters is God's view of them and the way that God values human beings, not how the mortal world, and in this case, the first century Roman Empire sees them, but how God sees them. And it's not all that different than how the mortal world continues to value people, as the Roman Empire did then, Missing from all of these attributes that uh, Peter is using, there's nothing about gender or genealogy or age, physical attributes, intellectual qualities, or any kind of ability, which are the normal things that are typical of who we determine is up or down or in or out. What matters instead is God's sight, God's perspective, and God's grace. And God sees us through Christ. He sees us through the resurrected Christ. That's his vision of us. That's the lens on God's filter. He doesn't ignore the brokenness and the pain of the world, but is aware of it. And even the brokenness within each of us. But through Christ, who defeated sin and death, he sees us. In a whole new way. He sees the possibilities and the potential for his kingdom good and for our good as well. Peter is writing to a church that from the world's perspective, as Christ had, been, had died on the cross, they should be ashamed of themselves. They should be humiliated and rejected. Just like that one was. Because they didn't know the rest of the story or they didn't believe it. They just said, why are you following this one who died a horrible, tragic death because he had been persecuted by Rome? Instead, Peter's saying that they should be seen themselves through the perspective of brought to life by Christ's suffering, death, and resurrection. And that they are essential parts of the building up of God's kingdom, like the living stones and like the Legos put together. That they're essential and that they're useful when aligned with the cornerstone growing out of them. And he's doing all of this by helping to reframe their way of seeing the world. There's a, psycholo- a psychology technique called cognitive reframing. It's not exactly like it, but it's something like it. It's just seeing things differently. It's shifting your perspective. It's like everybody sitting in this room. But over here, you see and hear things differently than over here you might, or or certainly up here. We're all in the same place. We're all in the same service, but we're going to see things a little bit differently from each other. Sometimes we need to see our lives, our world, from a different perspective. The church that Peter was talking to or writing to, they were seeing the world through a lens of fear, of persecution, of suffering. Again, real things. Peter was saying, okay, that stuff is still happening, but let's shift our focus, our perspective rather. Uh, Not so much focusing on the suffering that may come, but on the one through whom we have been reborn. Shifting from fear to hope. I was driving in this morning, I heard a a song that I may have heard it before, but never really paid attention to it. And I'm gonna um, I'm gonna mix up its lyrics to make it flow better with what I've been talking about. But the the song is called "Fear Is Not My Future" by Maverick City and Kirk uh, Franklin, and it's a good song. If you want to go listen to it in its fullness, do that. But the song goes from goes from "Fear Is Not My Future." You are you are talking about Christ. Christ is my future. Fear is not my future. Sickness is not my story. You are, you, Christ, Jesus is my story. I'm adding things. Those are not, those, when I'm doing that, I think is when I'm adding things. Heartbreak not, is not my home. You are. Jesus is our home. Death is not the end. Jesus is our end and our all in all. You are, you are, you are. And from there, they go on. Hello, peace. Hello, joy. Hello, love. Hello, strength. Hello, hope. It's a new horizon. Fear is not my future. Hello, hope. Hello, hope. That's kind of what Peter's doing here. Yes, those things could happen, and they would be horrible and they're tragic. But there's more. There's more. There's a deeper truth to who you are now. There's a deeper truth to who we are through Jesus Christ. Over the last three years, I've heard the phrase Faith over fear in many different circumstances. And it's it's not so much that that's wrong, but I think it's lacking. Because I think when we're fearful, it doesn't mean we don't have faith. I I don't think that that's what that means. We can be afraid and still have faith. However, are we being guided by the fear or are we guided by the hope? It's hope over fear. It's hope over fear. Not necessarily faith. And this is that was not a political comic or anything else of that mind. But I just that that phrase has rung in my ears a lot. And as I encountered it with this text, it's not about faith versus fear, it's about hope versus fear. And how we live in the midst of life and the challenges of life. As Pastor Minu said last week, yeah, I watched, I listened. Great sermon, by the way. This is it's not so much a doctrinal letter, it's a pastoral letter to a church in the community that was afraid and, and suffering in many regards, and how to live in face of life's adversities, as followers of Jesus Christ in light of the resurrection, which was still very new to them. They would still be able to know people who had seen the resurrection. That was still possible. And through Peter, they had. But it wasn't just a letter to them. It's a letter to us. Life's not always simple. We get stuck in things sometimes. And Peter invites us to shift our perspective, to reframe our awareness of the reality that surrounds us, and to lean on hope more than we lean on fear. This is is not against fear. Fear is a useful instinct, I think, at times. But not to lean on it, not to be identified by it, not for it to be our story. We're people of Easter. We're people of resurrection. and We're people of hope. May hope be our story, wherever life takes us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of your Son. And through him that we are together living stones built into your church. Filled with purpose and meaning and promise. And no matter what we experience in life or life throws at us, help us to view the world through the frame of hope. The gift of your Son. His defeat of sin and death, and our future promise of glory with you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.